Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Scott Wadlow. We're at his home in Portland. Uh, Scott from Sisson May Wine Company. Uh, it's August 4th, 2020. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Having us here. Uh, first question, and most important question for our purposes, is why wine? Oh, wow. Um, so I've always worked, I sort of stumbled into the non-wine work that I do, and it is, um, uh, I, I sell consulting hours, essentially, and run consulting teams to do HR and payroll software. So it's rather, um, it does best when there's no creativity in it, <laughs> other than uh, how you manage and interact with people, which is why I actually really like that work as well, but sort of the, um, there's a right answer, there's a way to do it, it's a lot of contracts, it's a lot of making sure things happen by a certain date. And so, partway probably through my 20s, I thought I really need some sort of hobby, some sort of outlet, um, something. And this was in the, gosh, I don't know, this was 20 years ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago. So the whole concept of blogging was sort of at a height. It was, it was widely known and accepted, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a part of our vernacular like it is now mm -hmm. or a part of our culture like it is now. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a blog. That's what I'm going to do. I, I'm interested in writing. I'm interested in exploring. But I had no idea what to do a blog about. And then I also recognized that I um, enjoyed going out to eat and interacting with food industry and, uh, and food culture and those sorts of things a lot. And that I had no idea about wine. And I always felt confounded by it and intimidated by it. Um, and that it seemed to be a part of some side of that culture that maybe was interesting. And I mm -hmm. thought, you know what? I could learn about wine and blog about the process of learning about wine. Well, very quickly that became um, pretty all-consuming just because there was so much to know about it. There was this small group of very dedicated, and I think this was happening in a lot of industries or a lot of topics, I did not realize that wine blogging was a thing, mm -hmm. but there was obviously this culture around it and this sort of um, uh, um, uh, dumbing down or almost reclaiming of the conversation from these people that we'd always deemed as experts. And again, not exclusive to wine, sort of blogging and the uh, consumerization of sharing opinions and the whole thing that was happening online and moving towards social media mm -hmm. essentially mm -hmm. um, was happening and so it was easy to become uh, deeply involved in this thing and uh, wineries were absolutely not sure what to do with this um, and so I was given tremendous access to um, to the industry really i mean there was like these really early wine blogger conferences and all these things that like 
samples started appearing on my doorstep and all of this thing and it was very exciting and fun and interesting and I also quickly became really uncomfortable with the ethics of it and who am I and um, so the, it, I don't know it was an interesting exploration but I became fascinated by the idea of this truly agricultural product that had this whole history um, that had uh, massive inputs from uh, the climate from the soil, from the year, from the person, from the vinification process that made it so unique from almost everything else we consumed that tried to have this consistency mm -hmm. and this formulas. And, and so I just, it felt like a bottomless pit of something that I could explore and connect to and I just loved it. But I also have a um, bit of a, I guess you could call it type A, I'm not sure if I'm type A, but there was a um, the economics of it, the um, accessibility of it, the uh, the part of making it actually commercially viable also is hugely of interest. Mm. So um, I may get I may do one of those where you ask me one question and I go on for an hour That's and give you the whole story. <laughs> uh, I was living in LA and we can get into more of the personal journey if that comes up uh, or not. Um, and through, through connections I made with blogging, I stopped blogging, and I went to one of my favorite tiny, weird little hole-in-the-wall wine shops in Pasadena and said, I want to work weekends here. So I had this full-time, salaried, comfortable job. Um, I want to work weekends here because I want to understand working with buyers. I want to understand working with the public on this and helping people figure out what they want to drink. Um, I want to sample a lot more wines than I can afford to buy. Um, I want to understand how, uh, I was really fascinated on how the perception of California wine in a California market was, you know, sh framing up what consumers purchased or thought their experiences going up to, in LA, you know, we had Central Coast and Paso Robles were sort of, and Temecula, mm -hmm. um, were sort of day trippable. But then we also had Sonoma and Napa, and the vast majority of the production was happening in our state. So I wanted to understand all of these things. Um, so I worked there in trade for wine and for no money for several years. Started getting to work with some, uh, buying some and working with the um, importers and the uh, reps from all the books mm -hmm. and understanding that side of things. Um, started teaching wine appreciation classes. I never did any formalized, um, like get my W. SCT or anything like that, um, but certainly did a lot of the self-study around that. Um, worked for a company that was trying to do these uh, appreciation classes in mm -hmm. conjunction with local restaurants. It was a really fun experience. Started my own sort of uh, consulting, tasting company, doing those privately, um, and uh, just kind of got into that side, retail, and then started doing some buying for restaurants and building out lists and training staff. And all of this was like uh, nights and weekends, um, and I absolutely loved it, and uh, would work behind the bar some nights, and I, I just, it was infinitely fascinating to me. Um, so, and now comes in, so I grew up in Oregon, uh, grew up in Albany, um, and so was always tangentially aware, had family here, we'd come back all the time, um, tangentially aware of the Oregon wine industry, but had a unique perspective of it, I think, or impression of it, I should say, um, 
in that it was such a minor part of what was available and known in Southern California in the, the wine scene. And pros it, it didn't sit in the same place that uh, other non-California wines did. Um, because, because it was domestic and the neighbor, it just wasn't of interest. We had everything we wanted from California, and then we were particularly interested in other New World wines and all of Europe, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, so it literally was like one sort of blind spot. And what we did have in Southern California was either the huge players, you could get, uh, you could go to Costco and get Erath and A to Z, um, or Evolution. Um, or you could get some of the people who did, if you went somewhere that really curated, mm -hmm. then you would get some of the pioneers because people knew they were important, or you would get some of the, um, uh, you know, you'd get Beaufrere or uh, Serene or some of the just higher end, higher priced, um, the, the, uh, the perpetuation of having our own place, but sort of maybe it's some somewhere that in the United States that can do something similar to Burgundy with the, mm -hmm. and that wasn't like completely perpetuated, but just sort of that's what we had access to or interest in or what the buyers down there thought to curate mm -hmm. um, for all kinds of reasons. I don't, you know, I, I don't think that's bad, but that was what I knew about Oregon wine. I knew I either needed 60 bucks or uh, it wasn't something I was particularly interested in exploring once I'd had it once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so, um, when we moved back, and I sort of lost all the contacts and relationships and everything I had there. I knew I wanted to do something uh, in the industry, but I also knew I didn't have any contacts here. I didn't understand the industry here. Um, and I really sat back and contemplated, do I want to go into it as a career and get started in some company that can actually um, work for a winery that actually can support a full-time position? Um, I don't have a resume that's going to be particularly attractive unless I meet people mm -hmm. and it's going to look very business focused. Um, but I have loved the relationships. I've loved the experiences of the consumers I've interacted with. Um, and I have a lot to learn. Um, and I realized that my other career had positioned me that I felt fairly comfortable to do something with starting a brand and a business. Um, I, I, I understand that side of things and that the challenge of developing sales channels and the challenge of learning how to make wine um, was what I wanted to tackle. So that's why wine. What I've done within that is there's a lot more to it, um, but that's why wine. When I moved back, I um, wanted to keep this going, and I looked at all options, and um, starting a brand and learning to make the product was really made sense and was feasible at this time to mm -hmm. start doing. Mm -hmm. right, so we're going to get back to that in a second, but I want to back up for a second. I'm, I'm curious, you talk about the kind of the perfect timing of, of starting a wine blog at the, at the kind of the right moment and, and getting that kind of interesting access. Uh, I'm curious about learning wine that way and about learning it sort of publicly. Uh, uh -huh. Tell me about the process of, of learning wine and understanding wine and, and uh, what, was, what, were the, what were the challenges? What were the, what were the interesting parts for you? Looking back, um, 
it, it was good what I didn't know at the time, because I probably made some pretty embarrassing assumptions. Um, but I find in general that the wine world, okay, current, current things that I'm opening my mind to and looking, I, I want to clarify the statement I'm about to make, but I find the wine world is pretty um, open to people who have an interest. It's built on relationships. It's built on human connection. You said before we started that um, the wine is more fun to drink if you know the people behind mm -hmm. it. I think that um, the whole concept of terroir has people built into it and the mm -hmm. people who touch it. And that's why the topic is interesting at all. So in that regard, self-study, exploring it yourself, it's actually, um, if you're willing to put yourself out there a little bit, I find people to be very open to share with you um, what they know, uh, why they're excited about it, and I find that to be contagious. Mm -hmm. um, but I also like to study, so I read a lot of books that are quite technical and um, a lot of books about history, and I made flashcards to understand varieties and where they come from and regions because I kind of get off on that kind of stuff. <laughs> so the challenges were, um, were overcomable by like, the interest can self-perpetuate the learning, I think, in this, for this topic. Mm -hmm. I think there's, um, the, but there are challenges in two regards. I said it would come back. Um, I think is an industry that uh, my presentation allowed me a level of access that I didn't understand at the time and that I continue to try to understand because I think absolutely um, that, um, that as a means of not commoditizing the product, which is important that we have um, developed it into a product that's only for people who can uh, financially have access to it, but also that look a certain way, that talk a certain way, that um, fall into a narrow lifestyle. I still see so much marketing that just drives me crazy. I see the way we um, build up uh, visits to these wineries to have access that I was just given because I had this blog, like, of course, come in. Um, and again, at the time, I was like, well, they perceive that they might need my words or need my access to other consumers or something. Um, so there's this huge self-perpetuating and therefore um, uh, 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 sort of discriminating inadvertently uh, that wine drinkers and wine consumers are a certain type. Mm -hmm. I recognize now that I um, am easily perceived to be someone worth getting the attention and information. Um, and so I did not have that stumbling block and yet I know that it exists. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, that we are totally generally failing on making it, uh, maintaining the, how interesting it can be and how complex it can be and how that that is of interest. Um, but then that it also, we want it to be accessible to people. So there's some, some, uh, uh, exclusive air that has to be around it to make it, I think, financially viable. Mm -hmm. um, 
anyway, those are the things I think about in terms of the stumbling about how to how to learn about it. I uh, literally, I think the way that I present and look allowed someone to take a chance on me doing their restaurant list and me being their buyer and me training their staff. Um, I yeah, so mm -hmm. I think I'm thinking about those things now. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where that leaves us, but I also, in my brand, and when I was like, well, I, I'm in a position to do this, um, I quickly realized like I, that's what, I don't know that it's missing because I now see some other places that do this, hmm. but I um, want to make wines, and I know we have grapes in Oregon to do so, that you just buy them and drink them, they're uniquely Oregonian. Mm -hmm. um, they're unique to the vintage. They're unique to what we can do here, but they're also like, just buy it and drink it. Like, we're not thinking about it. We're not putting it in a context of the world. Um, we're not uh, getting too dogmatic about uh, its production. There are things I definitely care about in how they're produced. Uh, don't get me wrong, but like, like it's just, wine. Mm -hmm. It's just wine. Mm -hmm. It's just grapes that we grew here and we did our best and we put them out there and um, yeah. I can get more into that. It's a, lot, it's a lot to juggle. It's a, it's a lot to kind of to, to kind of try to have both, like you say, both sides. The exclusivity versus the the interest versus the, the kind of complexity. In it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, yeah, it's interesting. Um, as you, as you, as you were tasting through Oregon, excuse me, tasting through in California, and, and the part where you're you're building wine lists and you're you're buying for wine, tell me what you looked for as you're creating a wine list. What 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 spoke to you, and how did you how did you create a list? Yeah, the um, the place I worked at the longest was had a successful restaurant in Whittier, California, called Flight, um, and they really kind of off the hip and based on price point, were buying wines from around the world that they thought tasted good. And they were doing a joint partnership in a new restaurant that was going to be um, seafood driven, uh, but like Mexican seafood and then sort of elevated. Um, and they had in their head quite strongly they wanted an all French list because they thought that they got to a rotating wine list over here meant that the neighborhood that they were in was ready to kind of move forward. And in their mind, that meant, let's do no California and all France. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was like, mm, mm, let's make sure we sell wine. <laughs> let's do what we need to do to sell wine rather than have a strict, you know. Uh, but I was also excited about the opportunity to introduce people to things that they might not be as familiar with. Um, so I cared a lot that uh, the wines, I, I cared a lot about price point because I think that mattered a lot mm -hmm. on whether we were going to move the wine. And then um, I cared about finding something that wouldn't be so old world in its styling that it would be completely unfamiliar to the population that I knew would come into the restaurant, which were mostly... Um, probably $10 California off the shelf wine drinkers mostly and a few trips to 
Temecula mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. somewhere that makes really juicy, um, really big fruit. Um, anyway, um, and that it, if it could, if I could get their interest in understanding how it was complementing the food that they were having and not clashing with the food they were having without going way overboard on like, um, you know, you pick up on this flavor and the chef used this herb because no one wanted to have that conversation. I was not gonna get my servers to have that conversation. But just, just spark an interest of like, wow, we, we went through that bottle and there was some, some symbiosis there. Our overall experience was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And also that feeling that I would get sometimes where uh, um, this is unfamiliar with me, to me, but we're gonna take a chance and what a great experience. That's sort of like, um, I don't think I've ever had a white burgundy before, but I've heard about that and then you talked me into this one and then I, I loved it and the whole dining experience was awesome. So those sorts of things, I had importers that I knew I wanted to work with because I just uh, trusted them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, so I built that list out, uh, it was, sort of successful. Um, I felt like everything worked really, really well. Um, and then we sold a ton of beer at that restaurant. So that's just how, that's just how that went. Uh, we did some like, uh, you know, uh, third bottle, two thirds bottle full carafe sales, really inexpensive and people loved that. Um, and actually that was kind of early in the development of what I wanted to do with Sis and May, which was like, bring the bottle out, pour it in your cup. I don't care what the cup looks like. You know, this doesn't need to be a, you know, um, I don't know. That it's just literally, I want it to make you feel happy and feel celebratory that you're having it, but I don't want you to think too much about it. And I want you to get to the end of the meal and remember the meal and the people you were with and that whatever was on the table totally enhanced that experience but was t I I don't have an interest in sitting here and and dissecting the sandalwood versus cedar and the cranberry versus I, I, I don't there are times and places that maybe I can geek out on that personally but in general I really loved having it written on a chalkboard what the wine was but it comes you in a craft and everyone filling it into their cups mm -hmm. and drinking it. Um, and like I said in California, we didn't have Oregon wines in that price point, mm -hmm. or that weren't big commodity mm -hmm. um, wines that were a little bit too indistinct for, for to be. So. Mm -hmm. so you come back to Oregon, and then before we get to your own personal project, I'm curious. Coming back to Oregon from that background, what was your what were your impressions of Oregon's wine industry as you came back into it? So, uh, last couple of years that I was in LA, when I was working at that restaurant, one of the books that I used, and unfortunately was limited to just wines from Europe, I expanded them to a little bit of Italian and Spanish wine at the end there, so I could get a little more uh, fruit forward and sell some more wine. Uh, but a good friend of, a good friend of mine had a book down there, and she picked up uh, Goodfellow and she picked up uh, Division Winemaking. Um, and I think, uh, um, oh gosh, 
I can totally picture it. They mostly do Pinot and Chardonnay. A man and a woman. <laughs> Not narrowing it down yet. We went from 800 down to 750. Um, <laughs> no, it'll come to me. Um, and so I started to get... Walter Scott? Yeah, because it's Walter Scott. Mm -hmm. Yep. Nice. <laughs> Did you know they were the same distributor no. down there? I mean, that's a, that is a good I don't, pinpoint. It was, it was really a Chardonnay. I don't know why. But, uh -huh. yeah. it was, it's totally Walter Scott. <laughs> uh, Erica and... Ken Paolo. Yep. Yep. Um, so it was division in particular uh, that I started to see, oh, there's people making wine in Portland, there's, um, and I knew what they were doing with sort of their space, um, which kind of got me down a rabbit hole of looking at some really micro brands, um, and then started to see some media around, uh, you know, Oregon is the most exciting wine frontier, and I'm like, it doesn't feel exciting from what I see on the shelves down here. Um, so, got here and was again able to kind of, in the same method that I've always learned about wine, I kind of probably subconsciously know what I'm looking for in people's marketing or in web searches or something to find um, brands and bottles to try that would interest me. Uh, super important to me that I found wine shops that I trusted the people whose living is to curate mm -hmm. things specific. And so um, uh, that helped me see some brands and kind of understand like, there's a lot of experimentation going on and there's actually a lot of great wine in the 18 to $35 range that are from these really small brands mm -hmm. and from people who are trying to do something interesting. Um, and so, uh, you know, that influenced my perception of, that uh, definitely influenced my perception. Because I, I really, probably 10 years ago, I would tell you, you know, people would say, well, you're from Oregon. Do you ever drink Oregon wine? I'd be like, I don't have 50 bucks and I'm not that into, um, I, I, I'm not into the way they're crafting those peanuts necessarily. Um, I, I do like a lot of them, but um, that that's just kind of what I thought they did. And then there's this argument about, well, we went with Gris, but Chardonnay should really be our grape. And I think there's some gorgeous Oregon Chardonnays, but I also wasn't particularly interested in that conversation. So I had to be here to realize there's a much broader conversation, there's a much broader um, experimentation, um, and that it's actually a really exciting place and not that it wasn't exciting when it was um is is oregon the new world burgundy and pioneers and getting attention outside of california that was exciting but that wasn't particularly something that i was at i attached to mm -hmm. so that's how it changed when i got here i was just being in portland i got to see how much else is going on You mentioned the, the, the challenge you're looking forward to learning how to make wine and then learning how to, to sell and market your wine. So tell me about, let's talk about the first one first. Tell me about how to make So, um, in, I had a, quite a bit of book knowledge about how wine was made, but that is pretty different from hands-on knowledge. So I, can, I could talk you through the whole process. <laughs> I knew where decision points were made, and I felt like I'd been given um, enough insight just in relationships I had with wineries and winemakers through uh, all of the other stuff I talked about to have a 
pretty realistic understanding of those decision points and what was sexy and what was work and you know I, I, I feel like I an idea but I haven't done the process from start to finish by myself at, at all so um, I contemplated do I want to um, do a label and a brand and make those decisions and do like a real custom crush situation and have a lot of creative control over it but not be in the cellar um, and uh, you know I looked at some options for that and then I thought no if I'm gonna do this I really want to learn it so I found a situation that is working very well for there to be guardrails on my learning process um, but allow me to be as hands-on as I um, and want to be. Mm -hmm. um, so I make the wines at Lady Hill in St. Paul uh, with Dan Dury, who is their Lady Hill's head winemaker. Um, he does do some, I, I mean, they're pretty open about that they do do some custom crush for some labels. And then um, he is just extraordinarily flexible with letting me be very, very involved. And it's my brand and uh, I can learn, but then I also realistically have uh, equipment and a crew that I can put in work orders and if I need something racked um, and can't get to it, you know, those sorts of things. Um, guardrails around learning how to use all the equipment. Um, and to bounce off like, uh, you know, hey Dan, I want to be um, as low sulfur as, as is at all possible. Here's what I'm thinking. Um, but I want to bounce this off someone who's doing this for 15 years. Um, I do my wines in a much more minimal intervention style, natural style, than uh, Lady Hill does. Um, they're still pretty. They, they're, they're not. They're, they're still pretty uh, minimal, but there's a margin between us. So I think he really enjoys sort of like mm -hmm. both of us exploring and talking to people about. Okay, I don't want. Um, what are my considerations for not soaking on the crush pad and the. You know, sorts of things something he hasn't done before and we so I think he enjoys that um, so we work together a lot um, and that is his space to be in charge of. I mean that's his he is paid to do so um, so that journey has been fantastic and that partnership has been fantastic um, and I still don't feel like I here by myself because I think um, what I gain from that relationship is really, really important. Um, and I'm just heading into my fourth harvest this fall. Um, so that's the process of learning it. I, it's fun to, occasionally we've shared fruit sources. So it's really fun to see like the decisions and influences I make side by side with fruit that literally came in together and then was treated separately from the time it got dumped out of the bins at mm -hmm. Lady Hill. Um, so that's the making side of it. Um, that's been a huge uh, journey and eye-opener. And again, I really do feel like I went in with my eyes open about uh, at what points decisions would need to be made. I do all my own fruit sourcing, um, have all the contracts with the farmers myself, with a few exceptions where I've said, hey, Dan, I know you're getting gree out of this vineyard. I need a little bit of gree for what I need to do, could that work out? Um, so, um, yeah, and I think uh, 
fruit selection is probably the by far the largest. You know, a lot of wineries grow there, so mm -hmm. the farming is the largest part for me. The farming is the largest part. Mm -hmm. What fruit am I going to use? What's my relationship with the farmer? What influence do I have on that? When are we going to pick that? How are they going to farm it? Um, what's been done with that fruit before? How can I react to what's been done with that fruit before? I think I would have told you from, from what I knew. It was sort of with book smarts that that's the case, but the reality of that is probably the biggest thing I've learned about winemaking. Like, the grapes that come in determine what my wine you're going to have. So, that, so now that you know that and now that you're experiencing that, that tell me about so answers to some, some of those questions. Who do you want to work with and what, what kind of grapes, what kind of, what kind of vineyards are you looking for? Um, I, work, I worked a lot with Johan Vineyard because it's biodynamic and I, and I cared about it being biodynamic, not exclusively, but because I know what that means about the inputs and the attention. Um, uh, I enjoy working with that vineyard because there's so many examples of what comes out of there. So you can really start to wrap, I could start to wrap my head around um, where does, which blocks and clones I'm working with versus what I decide to do with it once I receive it because I have so many places to compare it to. Um, you know, we, it's fascinating, we both, I, I made a rosé out of there and Johan made a rosé out of there um, off the same grapes that came in that day. Man, they're almost identical with just, uh, uh, and we, I threw all my juice in the stainless steel tank. I think they threw theirs in their stainless steel tank. We both let them, you know, initiate natively. But I work in a winery that does other mm -hmm. lots, and so I know I got different yeast in there ultimately than they did because mm -hmm. they're they don't have commercial yeast at all. Anyway, it, those two wines are so similar with just a little bit of a flavor. And so those kind of things I enjoy working with somewhere that a lot of places are taking fruit from um, and biodynamic. Um, but I'm not ex I don't exclusively only work with biodynamic mm -hmm. grapes. So the other places, uh, I sh sometimes I share fruit sources with Lady Hill, mm -hmm. and that is more out of convenience when I need a really small amount of something to round something out. Um, and then finally I've worked several years in different scenarios with people who have worked at Oregon Vineyards for a long time, um, and then have opportunities to lease out and do kind of their own thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I really like those relationships because these are people who know how to farm, um, but are kind of in a similar position to me where they're like, I love this. I want this to be financially viable. Um, and I'm going to do something small that I care about mm -hmm. and that is a lot based on relationships. So, um, so in those cases, I wouldn't take anyone who is, you know, using Roundup and totally conventionally farming, but I don't need to, I, I don't personally care if it has the certification. Mm -hmm. As long as they're farming sustainably and organically, um, things are clean, um, that they are aware of where they exist within the larger ecosystem, uh, I'm good with that. I, I, you know, my production is so small, I'm also not 
looking at like um, I need to get uh, huge yields off this acreage because I'm going to go into this giant. Um, you know, I'm processing 60 tons into my $14 screw top grease. Like those kind of considerations aren't there for me. Um, I really care about the relationship. So, um, yeah, I am. I work a lot with a guy who works full time for one of the big wineries as their vineyard manager. Mm -hmm. And then him and his brother have these small places that people have leased out to them on their properties. I think I get interesting varieties off those properties. Um, I think I get a lot of relationship and influence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this section of Gamay is Scott's Gamay. And we're texting back and forth and come look at this and what do you want to do with that? And um, I have access to go walk those rows and I really like that mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And uh, calls me up and says, you know, um, we're dropping fruit today. Why don't you come out and grab so I can be in the vineyard with them. Um, so I'll always be, I have no intention of ever owning vines myself. Uh, I mean, I had no intention of starting a winery either when I moved up here. So I guess I, I should never say never, but um, that's the type of relationship I want and the types of places I want to buy out of. I, I also don't have real interest in buying um, $4,500 a ton Pinot and doing something um, because the national media tends to give high scores to this vineyard. Mm -hmm. I, have I think that's a necessary part of our industry. The heritage of specific sites and the consistency of specific sites, but it's not particularly what I want to, mm -hmm. I wouldn't get off on working with that personally. Mm -hmm. I'll leave that to people who craft the edges of their wine uh, and, and care about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So before we talk about selling wine, which I'm really curious about, let's talk about just the actual logistics of starting a label. Obviously, uh, you've talked about kind of choosing your grapes and what you want to do. Tell me about choosing a name and, and, and choosing uh, kind of, uh, uh, I guess, an ethos or a public yeah. face for your company. Yeah. Um, that was probably the most thrilling part of the whole process, was trying to figure that out. If I'm going to do this, you know, how am I going to do it? Why am I going to do it? Um, so. I, I mean, I guess I'll just dive into the name. Um, Sis and May, uh, Sis is the nickname of my grandmother, um, paternal grandmother, and May is her sister-in-law, so her brother's wife, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, they were the first on my dad's side to move to Oregon. They came from New Mexico, and they initially uh, settled around Jacksonville, which I actually work with grapes from Southern Oregon as well. Um, very short period of time and I think they moved to like uh, Central Point or something for a few months um, and then ended up mostly around Corvallis mm -hmm. uh, and then in my childhood they were up here actually just nearby in like um, out by Washington Square so I don't know if they were in Beaverton or Raleigh Hills or whatever somewhere out there uh, and then retired down to Jefferson Oregon mm -hmm. um, I actually was at grandma's funeral when a bunch of cousins that I don't know because she had like 13 siblings that all ended up coming to Oregon. Uh, and so when I say cousins, they were like my dad's age, so they were like mid-60s and older. Mm -hmm. Kept talking about um, their memories of her and they kept saying, I just have this imprint of Sis and May on the porch. Um, and I knew about Aunt May, but I haven't met Aunt May. So um, both of them were total chain smokers, drank coffee from like 6 a.m. to about 4 p.m. Um, 
to also teetotalers, I did not uh, drink alcohol at all. It, I always teased that grandma was kind of mean. You knew she loved you, but she was kind of mean. She was just kind of harsh and rough around the edges. And uh, I remember threatening to put a knot in my head if I, and I never knew if that meant she was gonna like pound me and make like a knot, or if she was gonna tie my hair in a knot. But either way, it was very threatening. Um, and you know, she worked uh, in Corvallis, she worked like at a um, dry cleaner and she worked at a hair salon and just real working class kind of stuff. But she also had this like pride in her, in her um, sort of self-identity. Mm -hmm. um, and so she sort of had, she would say things that were really awful in terms of being politically correct and progressive, um, but had this fierce independence and in that um, she could do it, and a man shouldn't tell her what to do, and that uh, she cared a lot about her right to vote, and she would tell you very much what she was going to vote, and <laughs> that um, no one can tell you what to do, and you know, mm -hmm. she had this spirit about her that was both sort of problematic, but also fiercely independent, and so in my adulthood, not living in Oregon, there was something about the Willamette Valley sort of uh, that I always found to be like both progressive but also sort of problematic. Um, and so there was something about her spirit that uh, really defined me sort of what Oregonians and that in my childhood or the generation that came before me kind of were. Like um, she was very much someone who would always go into her chest freezer and have uh, you know, stuff from around here um, that that would make her own stuff and have her own uh, fruits and vegetables and jams and stuff that she and, mm -hmm. and we would eat the nuts that were from around here. And so there was just this, um, and then the vision of the two of them, kind of like always being on the porch. So they're sort of looking out for the kids, but they're also annoyed by the kids and uh, doing laundry. There was just something about it that I was like, that's the spirit of uh, of organ that is sort of in me that is sort of like calling me back but is also somehow to me attached to the um uh what i want to do with organ wine and my perception of organ wine is that like who care like who cares try your best be independent like let's let's do this let's drink this let's see what Let's see what we grow here, um, even when what we grow, uh, in addition to that we've got some attention, which I think is super important, or else we, none of us would be able to do this, mm -hmm. for um, these high-end uh, New World versions of Burgundy. Um, and so it just sort of came together to me, like, I like the ring of it. There's something sort of feminist about it. There's something... Uh, cute about the name, but it also really represents something to me um, that all came together. So I sort of sat down and wrote about like taking out the cigarettes, taking out the, um, that she was mean. <laughs> How could I get this across in a couple paragraphs if I were going to say why this name and, and whether you attach to it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I really liked how the story of like, how can we have something that is um, uniquely organ? Um, but also really accessible and understandable. Um, and so that's where it, it went.
because again, I really care about uh, the reason I like wine, why wine at the beginning, um, is because it can only ever happen, each bottle you have, we can mechanize stuff and chemicalize stuff to get something super consistent. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a place for that as a uh, grape flavored product mm -hmm. that people want to drink. I, that is, um, I like having a Rainier beer now and then and I want it to be exactly the same. But the reason I love it is because it can only ever happen then and there and with that. Um, and so that is inherently uniquely organ mm -hmm. when you have an organ wine. And it's fine to compare it and say like, wow, we do Alsace varieties really well. And this is reminiscent of, my dad talks about one of the wines being like, this tastes like all the wines I had on our Rhine River cruise. And I take that as a compliment for sure. I like doing those comparisons, but um, it only ever happened that year like that. So you've got your brand and you've got your, your kind of idea for what you're going to do with your grapes. So tell me about selling talking about mm -hmm. taking taking your product to market you've, you've bought wine you've been invested in wine all this time now you finally have a product of your own what's it like being on that side um i really enjoy selling to the public um so i don't have a tasting room i don't have a spot in a tasting room so um the business plan has always been to do events and i th i was hopeful that if i did one event a month um sort of built out some sort of mailing list at least um and I wanted to have organ distribution um, because I do not have time. I still keep a full-time day job because mm -hmm. this is, you know, I make very small amounts of wine and struggle to sell it. Um, I wanted organ distribution just so it was available locally if I, to back up that I'm having events um, and because I can work those markets at least. Mm -hmm. um, and then if I could have maybe two more states of distribution that were taking some of, I, I do do a entry level Pinot that I really like, and that's really hard to sell in Oregon because there's a lot of them. So two more states to take that, that would be the plan. Um, I love the events, they're exhausting, but like to connect with people, to see people enjoying it, to, to hear feedback, positive and negative, I really love that. Um, that takes a lot of time too to find the events, to do all the applications for them, to you know, to try and evaluate which ones are worth the table fees, which ones are you going to get repeat customers, which ones are you just lost in a sea, which ones are about connecting to other people in the industry because we talk about uh, getting seller palette where you only taste your own wines. You also can get so caught up in running yours that like. It's, it's not like I'm friends with the other 700 wineries. I know some people, but it's hard to be out there. Um, and I have no interest in going tasting by the time I'm done with all my work. <laughs> I'm interested in tasting the wines, but not necessarily in spending a day going mm -hmm. tasting. Um, so I love that part of it. Um, I have a distributor here in Portland, and uh, he is great. And... Uh, Supporting him and backing him up is something that I do have time to do because he takes a heavy lift on uh, delivering and opening new accounts. Um, but it's slow going. Uh, that's, you know, he has some brands that sort of are established and sell themselves. And we have a very open, honest conversation about that. To establish a new small brand takes more of his time. And I appreciate so much that he's taken that on and is working on that. Um, 
and we're trying to figure out ways to work together and COVID has changed that considerably. So really didn't have any product to even, have only had product really to even take out for about two years now. Um, and it's been slower than I hoped um, with some real like bright spots. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm out there, the response is really good. Mm -hmm. And I, um, um, so with my sales plan is always evolving. Um, I don't think I wanna do a tasting room. I see that model as, um, or I, I read information, hear information that that model is not um, as profitable as it used to be, it's hard. It take, would take me to a whole nother level of um, administration and overhead to lease a building, to have a payroll, to um, hold those that license, to uh, do that reporting. Um, and I don't think I have enough product to make that worth it at this time. But again, things can change, but I do need a few more consistent avenues, um, which also, COVID has offered a few that we'll see if those take off. Mm -hmm. So I don't do a lot of calls on uh, to buyers. Uh, Greg does most of that, and I see where I can back him up. Mm -hmm. um, that was pretty intimidating to me when I was before I had him to do that because it's such. I understand uh, sitting on that side of things and how many people want you to see and how many spots you have. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't on the buying side in a real wine region where um, people were self-distributing. So I didn't, I, I know that can be for Portland a thing and for wine country a thing. Um, but for the most part, people were really respectful. I didn't get a ton of placements doing that myself. I didn't know how to do, I didn't know how to do the follow-up. Mm -hmm. That was the part that was really like uh, getting thrown in the deep end. You say, are you being Portland polite and saying like, call me in two weeks because you don't want to say no to my face or are you, you know, uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I mean, to sum that up, direct consumer sales, I love it. I love interacting with the people. I love to see people get excited about stuff and ask questions. Um, I even enjoy, I was really nervous because it's so personal to me, um, it, you know, in my, day job and where I found success in my other career, um, I don't make something mm -hmm. and present it to people, right, and then watch their reaction. So I was very nervous about that, but I've actually enjoyed the back and forth when someone doesn't like something too, uh, for the most part. Um, I, haven't, I haven't had any bad interactions with that. I've had times where probably some sadistic side of me sees that they had a reaction and then they're embarrassed by the reaction because they think they're hurting my feelings. <laughs> and I've uh, thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> and I'm like, um, but the, to get a full picture of how this is hitting people has been great. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've enjoyed that mm -hmm. sort of, because it is very personal to me. I mean that I'm, I'm actively looking at, at the fruit set right now that and a half from now, someone might get to taste like, and I'll be with that the whole time. It's it. so you talked a little bit earlier about sort of the wine style, winemaking style you wanted to expand a little bit on your kind of winemaking philosophy and, and also how you got to that coming from <laughs> a, a, such a d diverse background of wine styles. Mm -hmm. uh, 
You know, I haven't really reflected on how I got to that. So, um, I, I knew for sure that I wanted to um, minimize any uh, inputs. So I did not want to inoculate. I want to go as low sulfur as possible. Um, but I do care about protecting the wine when necessary. And I certainly don't want people to buy wines that have gone off. Um, that uh, I only want to filter if necessary. Um, that I've really enjoyed wines that are unfiltered in general. Um, that uh, that I want it. That I think some additions as a safeguard or as a consistency like detract from what I find interesting about wine. So if I was going to reflect on how I got there, I realized quickly that the interest to me was not on something uh, aligning with the palette of sort of the um, kingmakers, I'll call them the media, the critics, whatever, um, you know, in the mid-aughts when I was learning about things and really exploring things um, there was a lot of talk about the parkerization of wines and um, and I got a lot of opportunity to taste like uh, huge scores I'll, I'll say that I, I went to Paso Robles a lot and I think it, what year I don't remember exactly when they got the number one wine in the world. And I don't even remember if it was Spectator or Advocate or whatever. And so, like, it was then that a handful of these places that were getting a ton of attention, I was getting to taste all of those things, and I was buying some of those things. Um, and I was seeing what we would put on the shelves at the wine shop that I was working at in terms of driving people to them with scores. And I was starting to think, God, these all taste sort of the same. And they don't taste the same. I, um, you know, you can tell if it was a Cab or a Pinot, but there is like, I am tasting wood influence. I am tasting a certain level of extraction. I am tasting a certain, like the way um, excessive ripeness presents itself, starts to taste the same to me. Um, this is literally not interesting to me. Um, it is interesting as an intellectual exercise of can we refine winemaking processes hit that palate, and we could. We've proven we can do that. Um, in fact, we've proven that with certain things, we can do that at a $15 price point um, in terms of uh, sweetness levels and color and um, influencing how the tannins strike people to make it feel more serious. And I was like, that's literally not interesting to me. That is like churning out a uh, frozen dinner that someone's going to have the same every time. Um, and so the nuance of like this here now seems to get lost. So one of the natural swings of that is to say, um, well, then the only thing that matters is uh, that we take the grapes, we squeeze them, and we see what happens. And I know, you know, I've never been like, um, 
this is a natural wine company and here's exactly what a natural wine company means and I only drink that and I don't get a headache and it's the only <laughs> thing that matters and and um, and yet there's some aspect of that that I do sort of feel inside I just think that the conversation around that or the the it can become as exclusive and as obnoxious as the point chasing it all it only matters that you got to 26 bricks and what French barrel you can buy. I find them, they can be equally obnoxious. So, <laughs> so not to, not that I probably don't do say obnoxious things also, or have an obnoxious viewpoint of being annoyed with people <laughs> in certain camps. Um, and they might find me equally um, acting like I'm better than them. But, uh, the, so what I cared about then, how I got to that is literally because that's what I find interesting about wine specifically. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I f sort of ultimately feel is the most respectful to uh, the grapes and what we're growing and what we're doing, which is that I can rely on what we have to make the best wine possible, but the best wine possible is the one that is most representative of um, what happened that year in that place. Um, without me trying to craft towards a premeditated ideal, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so my premeditated ideals are that there are not obvious flaws, that um, when someone buys it, they can expect not to have something way off. Um, but that's kind of, I don't, I don't want it to be off. Mm -hmm. I want to protect it from going off. <laughs> and for the most part, I've done that. I have a few <laughs> smoke taint stories from 2017. But <laughs> so I'm curious about, we talked about the, the pandemic, and obviously that, that's affected your yeah. sales strategy greatly. Uh, sort of how else has your kind of, I guess, wine life been, been affected by the pandemic? And, and what do you see looking ahead uh, for sort of pandemic recovery? Yeah. So um, the week where everything kind of shut down, uh, I was in jury duty, and I think it was the Thursday morning where I literally started to get like, hey, guys, we're postponing this event because we're not exactly sure. We're postponing to June. We're postponing to August. Obviously, those have been more permanently postponed. Uh, so I think I had five events canceled. And like I said, I try to do one a month, maybe one, twice a month. So that was a big portion. Um, so that just stopped, um, that, which is, that's where I get exposure to new customers and new faces. And it's also where I, you know, sell a thousand dollars for the wine or $2,000 for the wine and redo the coffers so that I can order the labels. I mean, I'm, I'm just, that's where I'm at is, okay, what can we do next? Because we were able to move this inventory. Um, so that's, that took down that piece, but there's been a lot that has come up too. I initially, uh, offered delivery within Portland and got quite a few orders that I would have never got mm -hmm. without that opportunity. That has quieted down as things have opened back up. Um, but that was interesting, um, sort of re recommitment from some of my best and loyal customers, like they're going to stock up. And that was a nice sort of surge there mm -hmm. for a minute. Um, 
a couple of online retail opportunities have opened up. One of them that I think is really interesting is At Your Door. So there is a uh, cocktail lounge in the Pearl uh, and restaurant that had to shut down. And they were like, what could we do? Um, maybe we can uh, deliver meals to service workers because we have a kitchen here. So they were taking donations and they were doing delivery of meals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, so they were employing their wait staff to deliver meals to out of work wait staff and using their kitchen. Um, and they heard that OLCC opened up for spirits delivery and someone thought, oh, uh, no distilleries are gonna be in a position to take advantage of that or have the infrastructure. What if we literally email distilleries tonight and say, we'll do that for you because we already have a delivery network set up. So super cool, innovative thing. And now they're doing um, some small wineries like myself and some breweries and some uh, pantry stuff um, and have started, you know, and they're employing their bartending staff who really, they're back open, but, um, and so doing local delivery and I, that's a new sales channel for me that's done fine. Like it's so passive for <laughs> me. I just make sure that they have it and they have the material and it um, really great group of people and feels like something that people did good to respond to that. Mm -hmm. So those types of things have opened up a little bit. And then on the distribution side, um, anything that would have been the price point to really only be uh, on-premise restaurant sales has just stopped. Um, and anything that I sort of have in screw top in the $20 and under place, uh, he's really able to get into groceries and kind of So, um, you know, that's also been good and people are buying wine in those areas. Mm -hmm. But what that means for my future planning is that uh, I am scaling back a little bit on production because I have more inventory than I intended a little bit, um, which does mean that I passed on some fruit that I've taken every year before, and I don't know what that'll mean about 2021. Here um, is that farmers are calling place and saying, do you want Pinot? Do you want Pinot? Do you want Pinot? It looks like I'm going to have excess Pinot. But I also hear the, uh, which kind of happens every year, but I also hear the set is lower, mm -hmm. at least in the, you know, I've bought Eola Amity. Um, and that is lower. I don't talk to that many farmers. Um, so we'll see where that ends up. Back in on those contracts later. Uh, I'm comfortable with that. It feels like the right Thing for me to do to get through some of what I have. Um, and it's allowing me to do really small lots of slightly more obscure things this year. Um, so I did a very tiny bit of Gamay two years ago. Loved it. It was easy to sell just because it was different. Um, so I've been looking for and found a little bit more quantity this year and I'm going to go with that and that's the only um, red wine I'm going to make. Um, but I also found some Savion Blanc in the valley, which I, I really like to work with stuff that will get ripe, tastes good, but isn't um, something people see. Mm -hmm. and, I, and at events that people really respond to that, they come around and they're like, oh God, you have something besides Pinot. Um, uh, Pinot is what I may have made the most of, so I'm not, uh, uh, but people get excited when you have something besides mm -hmm. Pinot. My Southern Oregon fruit, I also am not working with um, this year. Uh, just because overall I'm cutting 
down and I have I have some great two vintages of really good Syrah that is hard to move so I'm just not going to make any more. Um, people always get really excited to taste Syrah and then maybe buy one you know and that's just which I get that. Um, so what does it look like post? I still don't know. I don't know when we're going to be in a position to have a Newport Seafood and Wine Festival with all those people in there and that's like the type of thing where you places that small as me. I haven't done that event before, but I'm on the uh, list to get in there. And that, that can make our year at my size. I mean, it's not, I hear it's not the funnest thing to work, <laughs> but uh, you know, I don't know when those things happen and I don't know what those things look like. And then I also don't know, you know, like what I hear from my distributor about how people are buying wine. I don't know what that means for um, the upper upper end wines and the the more unknown labels and things like that. And I feel like I'm in I'm uh, conservatively enough invest in that I can continue and I feel okay. But I don't know. There's consolidation in the distributors. There's buying habits that are different. Mm -hmm. There's the minimization of events. Um, and I don't know. I hear like some of the prognosticators saying like invest in your online uh, sales outlets because those aren't going away I, I don't know because it's such a personal thing and then I also really care about this like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the um, it, and I feel like our industry is not uh, both from who who works in it who owns in it and then who um, we market to and so there's a the inaccessible nature of it it seems like possibly that level and up is getting cut off anyway and so like could we reinvent in some arenas where it actually sort of changes some aspect of the industry in a way in which there are channels for us to sell and interact and have consumers that are things we haven't even thought about before because we were blind to that. Because I don't think, I don't think it was always like on purpose. I think there's some that is on purpose, mm -hmm. um, but I think there's opportunity there. I don't know what it is. I mean, if, if I had the, um, to even have it be a business plan seems, um, seems a little bit, uh, I can't think of the word. Press. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't want it to be that. Uh, the last, I don't know if I'm allowed to use crass language. Sure. A lot of shit has blown up and uh, it getting put back together. I hope it doesn't look like it used to look, but I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Sure. Um, and I think the sequence of them, I think the pa global pandemic that threatened all of us physically coming first. Maybe that's okay. Mm -hmm. But there's pain associated with it too, and I, I recognize that I, you know, as a 400 case winery, that's my side gig. I, again, possibly crass, but like, the my potential pain, in terms of losing my business or things aren't working, is less than some of my peers, and so I recognize that too. Um, I don't know. It's a really good answer.
thank you for that. It was a we took, went a lot of different directions there. I really appreciate that because it is kind of how I think uh, how a lot of people are thinking and feeling right now. Is there's it's just a lot to yeah. a lot of un uncertainty. There's no crystal balls right now. No crystal balls right now. No. Um, I know one of the things that you did during during the shutdown was uh, virtual wine tasting uh, back in the spring. Tell me a little about that and that how is that something you can kind of see as, as a future for your, your, your kind of business? Um, so I did the Gaming Festival um, that was one of the events that got canceled, but uh, they were gracious enough to include me in one of the tastings. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. I um, so we sold packs through uh, at, at Southeast Wine Collective. So Division was a part of it, but it was at their mm -hmm. their wine shop and wine bar that sold it. Um, I feel like maybe we sold a case of wine, which I'm always thrilled to sell a case of wine. Um, and the interaction was fun. For me personally, the interaction with the other winemakers was the most fulfilling part. Um, there were a couple of really active uh, consumers or people who attended that were really fun to interact with. Um, I recognize some of them as being industry people. Uh, so that's the only reason I'm even hesitating because would I do something like that again? I absolutely would. Um, is it an ongoing financially viable way of interacting. Maybe I struggle with that because in my role as consumer, which I still do, I'd have no interest in going to one whatsoever. Um, it just like, I want people around. Uh, I, I mean, part of my, the ethos of my brand is like, I hope that it facilitated you enjoying the people. I hope it, I hope the people didn't facilitate you enjoying the wine because the wine's gone and you're going to put the glass in the recycling. So uh, <laughs> I hope that your relationship is was what was fun mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and that it was a part of that. I do want it to be a part of that. So virtual tastings seem lonely to me or something. There's something about it that um, I had a good time, so I don't want to take away from that other people might really enjoy that format. Um, it's less than ideal to me. Mm -hmm. Um, the logistics also of getting the wine to the person. Um, that, that's the other piece about tasting is that you can, I, I can open a bottle and taste 15 to 20 people on it and you can taste five or six different things if all of you can come to the bottle. Um, otherwise, I, uh, you open the bottle it's, it's a much bigger investment for you to participate in the tasting on the consumer side because you have to get the whole bottle or you, we have to figure out some way to do Capri Suns of <laughs> different packaging, which just feels like a, um, a lot of, uh, I don't know. It, it, it plays into part of the uh, accessing wine that is just not that interesting to me. Mm -hmm. The whole like, wine country lifestyle stuff and I'm doing this tasting so they're sending me three ounces of Grunewald liner or well, I don't know it's just not it this is not that interesting to me. what do you see <laughs> what do you see as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry then uh, coming out of the coming out of this and looking ahead five or ten years what is the industry gonna look like oh man 
I mean, there was a lot of um, I still feel like, and maybe there's a little bit of a reset in all of this, that allows us to continue to be uh, innovative and experimental and a little more um, uh, democratic in our... Um, and uh, what I would love to see and what I'd love to be a part of, and I don't know how to do it, um, it's certainly not something I can do alone, is I think that if you're in Portland, if you're in Oregon wine country, um, or if you're in like Brooklyn, or certain parts of places that um, there are uh, distributors that are kind of aware and kind of adjacent at least to the natural wine movement, you might have some exposure to the exciting stuff that's happening in Oregon. I'd love to see that be a little bit broader and, and people aware. So, uh, you know, um, it's a little bit cliche, but like we talk about like, people talk a lot about like, how, what, what do millennials connect to? Because they're our next market and all of this stuff. And when we talk about it in terms of like identifying our market and crafting it to try and hit that market, it's not that fun, but realistically, is it fun to me if uh, people catch on that $15 pet nat with your friends when you're cooking eggs at, you know, on a Saturday morning is fun? I do. That is fun to me. So if that means that we are finding the right products to get millennials excited about something, fine. Um, but it's that. It's like there actually is um, maybe the Oregon New Guard experimental group hipster wine scene was getting a bit played out, but maybe this resets it a little bit. Um, and maybe this tones it down from almost, it was getting to almost like an exclusive, are you natty enough? <laughs> um, maybe I'd love every market in the U.S. who thinks about Oregon wine to know that you can both collect really world-class age-worthy Pinots or you can get, um, you know, something that someone in Carlton did that's cool for 18 bucks. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I don't feel like outside of maybe LA, New York, and Portland, people know that. So I'd love to see it go there. I don't know that we're going there. Um, then the other things that excite me is that I think um, re uh, Southern Oregon regions um, get some attention naturally because people outside are not aware of, uh, when they say Oregon wine, we sort of have this established reputation and they get the benefit of that. But I think what they're doing is super cool as climate change kind of moves things up and um, some of what happens in California gets too much for me. Um, so I think that's some exciting stuff that I hope. Uh, it seems to me that we have things happening in Portland that are celebrating those wines and bringing those wines in and putting them on equal footing with mm -hmm. what's happening up here and the gorge as some really cool stuff. Anyway, so I want, that is of interest to me. Um, more specificity that's happening with some of the AVAs is of interest to me, but that's just kind of nerdy stuff. I don't know if that really matters to the market outside of, um, but I like, uh, that kind of specificity and like getting some more 
uh, focus on that. Um, overall, I think the domestic wine industry has some real, real, real challenges that Oregon is just a part of. Um, I think that uh, it's impossible to differentiate yourself. There's, uh, I think that the consolidation of distribution makes it so that some of my hopes about that I talked about earlier in other markets understanding what happens in Oregon, I don't know how they're going to because those wines were not available to me even in LA mm -hmm. um, very readily. Um, uh, so I don't know what we do with that. Um, and then I, you know, I don't know in terms of like what we're growing and those sorts of things. Uh, I, I'm hopeful, maybe there's a little reset here too, in terms of us not pricing ourselves out of being able to continue to be experimental and not decide that we've settled on what we can and can't do here. Cause I think the stuff I like is stuff that people, and I'm not the only one who likes it by any means, but uh, it is when people try something and do something different. So I hope we can continue to do that. Um, and we'll need the established big name collectible Pinots to continue to be taken seriously too, I'm sure. What about his look ahead for yourself? You obviously talked to, we talked about that already in terms of uh, future, kind of uncertain, but uh, if you do continue in wine and you grow, do you have a, a size in mind? Do you have a kind of an end point in mind? End point, I don't. Um, I would love to get a couple of SKUs that have their markets outside of Oregon. Um, that are just sort of the engine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, and then I don't always have a plan. I have a plan to make it to next harvest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have a plan to uh, cover the expenses, you know, mm -hmm. um, so that I can keep doing it and sort of see where it goes. Um, I would like to figure out a way, and I have not figured out a way, to have somewhere where people can come always to get and taste the wines without opening my own tasting room. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of different potential options that that looks like. Uh, but I know when people get introduced to the wines, they like them and buy them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I need to get to that point. Uh, and I absolutely don't want to lease my own building and run a crew right now. So I don't know exactly what that looks like. Again, uh, there's something in the back of my mind that says there's going to be so much reinvention of how space is used and how places open back up and um, lease options and co-op options that I'm just, I've always been trying to like, aware and keep my feelers out and it's felt like options have uh, presented themselves in convenient times uh, yeah so I would like to get to I, I think I feel like somewhere in the two to three thousand case mark 
is where there can start to be a little bit of a profit and I can start to make some investments in terms of um, equipment and space of my own and um, and I would love for the trajectory of my winemaking learning and the trajectory of uh, my production to meet at a perfect point where I'm ready to have my own space and do my own thing. Um, I don't know if that's three years from now or five years from now, and I'm happy with what's happening this fall, and that's about all that I'm <laughs> secure. Perhaps as far as any of us want to look right now. Uh, <laughs> school, just school, just if we can get through the first week of school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, if someone were to come to you and say they were interested in, in joining the Oregon wine industry in some fashion, what would your words of wisdom to them be? Um, uh, words of wisdom. I think I have had people, generally younger people, come to my table and say, I'm doing my first internship or I'm studying my, you know, uh, at Chemeketa or whatever the case. Um, I think... I think there's three things. The first thing is that I find the vast majority of people I've interacted with to be open and warm and genuine and in this for reasons that you might assume in terms of there's something um, engaging, there's something um, authentic. And while I sometimes think there's a sheen of the way we've marketed and accepted as inauthentic, I find that people, particularly in the organ industry, um, to be pretty down-to-earth, real, kind people who want to share and want everyone to do well. And so for those reasons, I would never tell someone to avoid that. Um, there's also something about the industry that can be um, a little bit flaky, a little bit noncommittal. Um, no. The, the sort of sexy ideal of growing grapes and working in a tasting room and being adjacent to some ideal of wine um, doesn't always align with great business practices. So keep your eyes and ears open and make good um, decisions. And, it, you, um, and it's a small enough industry that reputation does. I, I don't know. I feel like the industry doesn't really know me and I don't know that many people in the industry. That's probably not as true as I think. I, I probably do know quite a few people, but reputations um, are quickly established, both good and bad. So, so be, um, just be true to your word. Be kind and respectful and open and perpetuate that culture that really does already exist here. Um, that will serve you well because um, it, the, the bad eggs are like known. I don't even, I, I'm not, because uh, it's a small industry. That happens in my other side of life too. So that's not unique to wine, but that's a bit of advice. And then um, uh, always keep in mind that the, uh, that the product s selling is like, it has to happen if this is going to continue. So you can't just be. Ultimately, you have to also work within the confines of the commercial side of it, um, which is probably a lot less sexy than the production or the lifestyle or the marketing or the fun part of it, because it is fun. It, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. Um, 
But if there's not a sales plan, then it's, it's not gonna go anywhere. Um, so just, yeah, even in the production side, like decisions have to do with money and time and, and what's gonna result and what the, mar what the margin's gonna be on the end result and how much is going into distribution and how much you're gonna be able to DTC and like all of that it does matter because ultimately it is only sustainable as a business. But it is fun. That's the it. What you think about if someone's just getting started because they think it's going to be fun, they're not wrong. It is. It's about. It's a. Um, it, it it's a product to enhance moment and pleasure and like. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> Delicious. Right. Well, so all the questions that I have for you. Okay. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we so. didn't cover that we should have covered? All right. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much thank for your you time guys. today, for your hospitality in this wonderful day in the in the valley here, or the sort of valley here. Uh, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.